Welcome to part four of my ambivalence mini-series, and in today's episode, I'm going to explain exactly what you need to do to break your emotional attachments to drinking so that alcohol simply loses its appeal. My name is Colleen Cashman. I'm a soberish recovery coach, helping high-achieving women get emotionally sober so that drinking less or not at all feels like a superpower. Join me each week for evidence-based holistic strategies to regulate your brain chemistry and nervous system and also develop a growth mindset so you can feel proud, confident, and resilient with or without a drink in your hand because it's not about the alcohol. Recently, one of my clients questioned the wisdom of my approach in being so strong in my assertion that it's not about the alcohol, because some people seem to misinterpret that this means that it's okay to keep drinking. And the assumption she was making is the assumption that the entire sober community makes is that people suffering from an addiction are inherently incapable of knowing or deciding what's best for them and that they need other people to tell them what to do. And also that the only way to really make progress with recovery and recalibrating your brain chemistry is to remain 100% sober for an extended period of time, which could range from 30 days to 90 days to six months to one year to five years to forever. It seems like everybody has a different opinion about that. And I know my own opinion has changed multiple times. And so I really appreciated her bringing this up. Like, this is the shit we have to talk about. And she asked the question from a place of genuine love and curiosity. And it was a damn good question. And as I have vacillated back and forth on the, quote, right amount of time, I have to acknowledge how I felt when she asked the question, I felt awful. It really hit me in the gut and it triggered fear and guilt and even some panic. Like, oh my God, is it a disservice to empower people to see sobriety as a choice that they get to experiment with and decide what's right for them in any given moment instead of just presenting the hard and fast rules and insisting they follow them, which actually goes against the science of learning. We don't learn when other people tell us stuff or when they appeal to our emotions with either fear or hope to convince us to do things their way. We learn from experiencing what works and what doesn't work. You know, my healing journey included three years of complete abstinence. And the gal that asked the question had also been a member of AA for at least six years. So we were both indoctrinated to think that recovery doesn't begin until you adopt a zero tolerance policy for alcohol, also known as surrendering your power. She and I were both taught to measure success, at least in the early days, by the number of sober days, and that having a quote slip up required you to turn in all of your chips and completely start over because it's a black or white, all or nothing, life or death situation, at least in the sober community. And so having her challenge my approach 
brought up a lot of fear, and that made me really uncomfortable. And for a few minutes, I entertained the idea of making that feeling just go away by adopting the policy I used to have, where clients had to sign a commitment statement that established sobriety as the primary goal for my program. But then I decided to use the same tools that I teach my clients to explore my own feelings instead of just accepting them as facts. So first, I regulated my nervous system and created a sense of safety in my body. Because you can't have an open mind when you're in a state of stress. The more anxious you feel, the more defensive and negative and knee-jerk reaction you become. So I allowed myself to just feel the uncertainty and also the perceived threat that I was feeling to my identity as a helper and a leader. And I opened my heart and made room for those sensations in my body. Like, yeah, this is what I'm feeling and I can handle this. And I gave myself the time and the space to make sense of the big picture so I could make an informed and educated decision using my prefrontal cortex instead of my amygdala that's been hijacked by fear and stress. And so I looked back at the first two years of when I was running my next chapter program, when I was asking women to commit to a minimum of 12 weeks of abstinence, because at the time I really believed that complete abstinence was required to break the addiction. Complete abstinence was required to reset your dopamine and repattern your nervous system and dive into your subconscious beliefs. And cognitively, I was basing that opinion that they should be sober for the 12 weeks on a study that was done on people who met the clinical threshold for alcoholism. And that study showed that it takes an average of 14 months for dopamine to return to a normal level. And as I've explained, addiction is fueled by that dopamine deficit. And when you're in that dopamine deficit, your brain does indeed respond differently to alcohol. But the question that is left unanswered by the study is if it's possible to raise your baseline levels of dopamine without going completely sober from alcohol. Personally, I would imagine that it's harder, but everybody is different. So it's impossible to look at statistical averages and make an individual decision. There are also lots of studies that show people in active addiction are able to move right into moderate drinking without going back to addiction which is why I have moved to a dare say I common sense approach where you have to learn to get to know your own body and what works for you. But I still had emotional attachments to the idea that one drink puts you all the way back to square one, even though that doesn't gel with science. But you know, that's what's drilled into us in the 12 step philosophy because AA is still defining relapse as a single drink. But the actual definition of relapse in general and with addiction specifically is that it is a return of a disease, which in this case would be active addiction. And the experience of active addiction is when you're using a substance to relieve the withdrawal effects of that substance. So having a single drink or even over drinking in a single episode doesn't qualify as either a relapse or a return of addiction. But even removing those labels from the situation, the real question is, does consuming alcohol while you're still in a dopamine deficit make it harder to control yourself? 
And I think the answer is also common sense. Of course it does. But as I've discussed on other episodes, addiction is a learning process. The brain learns over time how to solve problems using alcohol. But recovery is also a learning process, not just for staying sober, but for staying present with your feelings instead of trying to escape them and learning resilience, how to get back up when you fall down. Because that's the whole point of getting sober in the first place, so that you have the ability to live and thrive in the present moment and deal with life as it is, not as it should be or what you should have done differently last night. Which is why setting sobriety as the ultimate goal is a short-term solution for most people. And also why only 5% of people who go to AA are still there in a year. Because sobriety doesn't cure the cravings for alcohol that are caused by the romantic notions of what you think it means to be a drinker. And getting sober because you think you have a drinking problem actually reinforces your identity as a drinker, just one who no longer drinks. All the focus is still on alcohol, which explains why some of my clients who are the A-plus students in sobriety, who seemingly hit the ground running and don't look back, call me six months or a year later with a story of a regrettable drinking decision, and now they feel like they have to start all over and that they've lost everything. And ironically, it's the clients who struggle in the beginning because they're still drinking occasionally that seem to experience the biggest transformations because they are actually doing the work to resolve their ambivalence with real-time experiences that allow them to distinguish fact from fiction where those of us that are 100% perfectly sober have mostly just been high on the novelty of sobriety and therefore haven't experienced any real ambivalence yet. In fact, we've been looking down on people that do. I know that's how I felt. I mean, just make a decision, people. It's not that complicated. And there's that black and white thinking where, once again, we have not learned the lesson that all emotions are temporary, even the good ones. And that no matter how hard you promise, no decision is permanent. Our minds can change at any moment. And if we don't learn the lesson, we're in for a bumpy ride. The only way to avoid the lows is to stop chasing the highs and learn how to be emotionally sober. Even if you're like me and somehow you're able to flip the switch and just make it stop, you still have to do the work. You need to take the time to shift your identity away from being somebody who had to quit drinking because you had a problem. Because if that's the only reason you don't drink, then the more sober days you get and the farther you get away from that problem, the more likely it is that your ambivalence will creep back in. Simply rejecting the part of you that wants to drink doesn't make her go away. The only way to be free of subconscious urges is to bring them into consciousness. Liquid Stevia. Resolving ambivalence requires that you uncover the beliefs you have about what it means to drink. You have to go into your subconscious mind and pull out the emotional connections that you have made throughout your life, which means acknowledging how you feel and getting curious about why you feel that way. 
This is what I refer to as untangling the cords. Starting in childhood, from the time you became aware of the fact that alcohol exists, you began to form opinions about what is good and bad and right and wrong when it comes to alcohol. You were taught that a way a person drinks means something about them. Losers drink out of a paper bag and hit their wives and lose their jobs. Sophisticated people drink highballs and discuss world affairs while consulting with the sommelier to choose the proper wine pairing for the duck foie gras. Think about how our 21st birthday is presented as a rite of passage. Finally being old enough to drink signifies your arrival into adulthood. We're essentially in a holding gate for three years between the time we're eligible to vote and get married and the time that we're allowed to enter into the inter sanctum where the real grown-ups do business. So for the first 21 years of your life, when your worldview and self-identity are not only forming but cementing, it feels like you're on the outside looking in and the barrier to entry is drinking. Alcohol is the prize for being an adult and everything that means being an adult. For 21 years, it's the carrot you're chasing in hopes of finally being able to feel like you're someone important, worthy of respect and attention. So the majority of your emotional attachments to alcohol, well, not to alcohol itself, but to your beliefs about and the rules for alcohol, come from scenes and conversation in your life before you ever had your first drink. The little kid version of you formed opinions about what to think and say and how to act by watching your parents and family members. You learned when and why people drank, what happens when they drink, and most importantly, how you felt when the adults around you were drinking. And then you're going to have to weed through your own experiences with drinking. When did you come to associate alcohol with hard work and accomplishments and social connection and fun? When did you notice that it relieved your stress? When did you feel like you deserved it? When did you feel like you didn't deserve it? What rules were you following in the beginning? And how did those rules change over time? Why did they change? And what were you feeling in that moment when you decided to change them? You see, all of your feelings still resonate in your body. You may not consciously remember the details, and you don't have to, but your body remembers. Your subconscious is your body. Your emotions are your memory. They remind you of the conclusions that you formed long ago so that you don't even have to think about it anymore, which is why it's so important to understand that your feelings aren't the bearers of bad news. They don't tell you about the outside world. They are not objective truth. They are invitations for you to revisit the assumptions that your three-year-old self made, your eight-year-old self, your 11 and 15 and 19-year-old self, all of the old versions of you have made decisions in time and those, those decisions get stuck in your body and they will be there until you revisit them and actively decide that's not a complete story and you would like to change how you think. When you are experiencing a negative emotion, it is the manifestation of an old belief that is conflicting with a new idea. That's why they feel bad. 
Like any pain, the body's just trying to get your attention. It's saying, hey, hey, I hear what you're saying, but this is how we used to think. Do we still want to think that? Or is it safe to let that go? Ambivalence is the part of the change process where you have finally realized that your life would be better without alcohol, but your subconscious has not yet let go of your emotional attachments to drinking. And ignoring the ambivalence, suppressing it, avoiding it, numbing, pretending it isn't there, lying to yourself that it's there because you don't think you should still be feeling this way, well, all of that just keeps it stuck in your subconscious. And as 90 to 95% of your actions are driven by subconscious feelings, remember what I said about addiction, it reduces your access to free will. The more distracted and stressed and addicted you are, the less capable you are of overriding your subconscious urges, which is why there is no way you can outthink over drinking forever, no matter how smart and logical and determined you feel in any given moment. And also why taking a break from alcohol and getting completely sober for a while and committing to the process of resolving your ambivalence is so important. It is the shortest distance between point A and point B. Because the only way to reprogram your subconscious, the only way to break your emotional attachments to alcohol is to bring your childish beliefs into consciousness so you can look at them, feel them. You have to give a voice to these emotions before you can release them. You have to validate them as being real, being how you did feel at one time. You have to make sense of how you were feeling by understanding why you felt the way you did. And this awareness, which feels like an aha, that moment you realize something new, you're creating two dots that previously you hadn't connected. That is literally the formation of a new neural pathway. Two neurons that were previously unconnected have now joined and you've got yourself a new thought process. And it's a little thought process, a baby thought process. You're going to have to think it again and build it out with other memories and put it into new contexts and test it under stress. But over time, this is how new beliefs become integrated. New beliefs become your default subconscious response. Remember, addiction is a learning process and recovering from addiction is also a learning process. But there is a final step to this process that you must undertake before you can permanently resolve your ambivalence. One that actually comes before the step we just went over. So I guess it's not actually the final step. It's an intermediate. And I'm sorry that I've done this out of order, but there's a reason that this is easier said than done. And in part five, I'm going to reveal the obstacle that you will face when you try to do this work and explain exactly what you need to do to remove it. And if you haven't been following these episodes in order, do know that you can get in the show notes and download my free 10-page workbook for resolving ambivalence that I created as a companion guide to this mini-series. You can also go to recoverwithcolleen.com forward slash freebies. I'll see you in part five.